This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. The Hamilton Arts Festival is coming up in the city. It opens on the 24th of February. It goes through to March the 5th. It's a packed programme. Over 10 days, there's theatre, there's music of all styles, there's screen, there's comedy, there's your favourites like the symphony, mystery events, kapahaka, breakdancing, which is new this year. And one of the theatre shows is called A Rare Bird, and it focuses on the life and work of Perrine Moncrief, a pioneer in the field of conservation. She's an author and a philanthropist. The show's been written and performed by well-known actor and writer Elizabeth Easter. And Elizabeth joins us now to tell us a bit more about Perrine and how she's brought her to life. No, my hi to my Elizabeth. Welcome Morning, to the Free Emma. Breakfast. Yeah. It's lovely it's to, so um, nice to yeah, lovely to have you on the show. Um, so Perrine, I mean, this is just I love the title for a start. Love a pun. <laughs> so, <laughs> some people say I might be too fond of puns. But yes, so A Rare Bird, I've written um, as an actor of a certain age and who has played a psychopath on Shortland Street. Um, sometimes if you want to work, you might have to write your own work because people <laughs> might not always want to cast you for your, you know, for your dangerous past. So anyway, so I was, um, you know, in the course of my life since I've been not just acting and all actors need to have other things, I've become a writer. And in the course of writing, I've often written travel stories that have taken me to special places like islands. And so I've met a lot of ornithologists and, you know, among the totally places like that, I've got to hug Sirocco, the kakapo. And um, it's amazing. So the more you learn about nature, the more you get moderately obsessed with it. So in the course of my being moderately obsessed with birds, I um, pitched a story, a book actually, to the publishing house Random Penguin House or Penguin Random House, however they like to style themselves, about New Zealand bird writing. And they were like, oh, it's a lovely idea, which is kind of rare when you pitch a batty idea to a complete stranger about a whole book that they say, yes, more often you'll hear no, thank you, or nothing. (laughs) And so in the course of writing the book and getting all these excerpts from people like Sam Hunt and Honey Tufari and 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 Frank Sargis and amazing people and lady writers as well, I might add. One of the lady writers, or one, um, Lawrence Fernley, who is a novelist, a fabulous award-winning New Zealand novelist, Mm. she um, said, oh, have you ever heard of Corrine Moncrief? She's a wonderful bird writer. And I was like, who? Who? And because, you know, a name like Corrine Moncrief, you would remember if you'd heard it. I started to have a little Google and thought, wow, this is amazing, this woman. I mean, she's been dead a while now. She was born in 1893, so, you know, that'll give you an idea of what her age would be if she was still alive. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, her writing is amazing. She just has had such a fondness for our birds. But then all these incredible things to, um, for example, the Abel Tasman National Park would be a dairy farm, if it wasn't for her. All the trees would be cut down and would have been turned into pasture land. And um, then in the course of making this book, this Bird Words book, Lawrence Burnley said to me, you should write a play about her. And I, for a little while, I said, why don't you do it? Because, you know, and then um, she said, well, I'm quite busy writing novels, thank you. And then, but it made, it, a little seed was planted in my head. And the next thing you know, well, not the next thing, because it's sort of eight years later. <laughs> um, I'm taking this play for its first full outing. It's had little readings here and there, but I'm taking it to the Char Bar Gardens in the Hampton Gardens to do it in nature. My bird play, all about Perrine Moncrief. Oh, how wonderful. And the Chabar Garden is such a beautiful garden with that wonderful um, vision of the river and all the greenery out behind it, isn't it? What a great spot. Isn't it beautiful? And it's got that little mini Taj Mahal. And, the, and whatever time of year, I don't know how those little gardeners do it, 
the flowers are vibrant, you know, the most vibrant coloured flowers you could ever imagine. It must be bee paradise, I expect. It's absolutely wonderful. They're like a Persian carpet, I think, is the effect thereafter. Every now and then, just a couple of times a year, you have a very sad little sign saying that they're, you know, they're replanting them. And, it, and, and there's a photo of what it could look like. <laughs> but, but, it'll oh, be no. but it'll be perfect for when you're there, I'm sure. Look, Pareen, oh, I should hope so. Yes, no, it will be. It'll be perfect for the Arts Festival. It always is. And so, yes, they'll be grooming it now with tweezers, won't they? Absolutely, they will be. Um, so, look, Perrine Moncrief, I mean, she's described in the, um, in the program beautifully, I thought, as a woman on a mission. She's got a substantial sort of bio-listing in the history records, and she's clearly a woman of significance. But, as you say, not much is known about her, maybe outside of those conservation circles. So, I love that you've discovered her work. And given she did have a very long life, I think, what, well, did she pass away in 1979? So, what's that, 80? She got into her 80s. Yeah. She had a very long life, and I started, when I was um, preparing to talk to you today, I started having a bit of a look, and I thought, well, she's got this massive, massive list. She was a tramper, a traveller, a wife, and a mother, and an ornithologist, and a conservationist, and a lecturer, and a writer, and a lobbyist, and, and she also suffered a couple of significant tragedies. So can you tell us a little bit about how you took all that information that you obviously found out about her, this long life, how did you kind of select and then craft your work to get it to a little piece that we're going to be able to see? Well, in the course of the play, I, um, I talk to the audience as myself and discuss the complexities of making a play about a real person because you do have so much to draw on. So Perrine, apart from... So she arrived here in 21, 1921, and by 1925, she had written one of the most amazing field guides to New Zealand birds. So, you know, what, three years she went, oh, look, I'll know all the birds and I'll write about them and I'll get my friend Lily to draw them. But in the meantime, too, she had, she was a member of philosophical society. She was entirely embedded in the world of craft and textiles. Someone who knew her gave me the sleeve of a cardigan she'd been working on when she died of admitting. And it's exquisite. It's just, she was a very founding member of the Girl Guides movement because she felt that boys were given lots of opportunities, but girls weren't. And she was, um, she was a feminist before she, you know, probably even knew that she was one. And she also, I, mean, I won't give away too much about her story, actually, because I suddenly thought I could just tell you every single thing. Mm, mm. But she just, I don't know how she found the hours in the day. She wrote, I mean, she, she, the way she lobbied councillors and governments as well, because this is a time, the 1920s and 30s, people weren't thinking about the bigger picture. People didn't think that there was a finite amount of resources or that if we lose a species, it will be gone forever. And she, goodness knows, she saw the um, connection between certain birds and certain trees. And she couldn't understand why millers and foresters didn't recognize the value of a kereru, for example, for being a tortura planter. And she just came along, looked around and went, gosh, this place is lovely. And then at the same time, too, this family, because that's the other thing. I mean, it's possible maybe to be this every kind of woman when you're phenomenally wealthy. Um, they bought a little bit of land down um, by Tonga Bay and they had just sort of 500 acres that they bought right by the sea. And she would go camping with her family every summer for eight weeks. And she'd go with no shower, no cooking, you know, just cooking on a fire. She had no pretension. She could live in nature and be completely content and live in a mansion with presumably some sort of staff and also be completely comfortable. She was just divine. 
She I sounds, wish I'd make it. Yeah, oh, she sounds remarkable and and really quite a modern woman. So you say she came here in 1921 and she come out from the, from England and, and did she bring inherited sort of money? Is that how they got going? Yes, so her grandfather was the pre-Raphaelite painter Sir John Everett Malays. And so she came from a very wealthy, she would have had a governess in London. She went to finishing school in Belgium. She had a, you know, a posh life. And she, they were actually, the family were moving up, again, giving away too much, but they were moving to Canada. And um, because Malcolm, her husband, had been a bit sort of hurt in various wars, he fought in the Boer War and then in the Second, uh, First World War. And their doctor said, you really need to leave foggy old London if you want Malcolm to thrive. And so they thought they'd move to Canada. And they were on their way to Canada and um, stopped off in New Zealand to visit some res- relatives who had a sheep farm in the South Island. And Perrine got off the ship and went, we're not going any further. This is, this is me. I'm here. And the family, obviously, her husband and two sons, were used to the, no doubt, being caught up in the Perrine vortex. And so they disembarked. And that was that. And she made a home in Nelson and just obviously surrounded herself. Everyone you ever meet who knew someone who knew her or speaks of her just has such fond memories. Like her activism was very, she brought people on board it seems to me, rather than alienating people. She was just amazing. And thanks to, I mean, you think about the Abel Tasman National Park and Tōtūranui. They're icons of our natural landscape. And they'd be gone if people didn't make those sorts of enormous actions in their lives. No doubt at the sacrifice. I'm sure she sacrificed. You know, there would have been time when her children probably went, where's mum? Oh, she's picketing. She's tied herself to a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think too that sometimes in order to make a big impact, you have to, you know, you do have to sometimes negotiate, don't you? And 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 take space that otherwise might be taken up by by other things. And not everybody's able to do that. So she is a remarkable woman, isn't she? And mm. you know, so her greatest achievement, I guess, do you think that is probably in terms of us as a nation in honouring her do you think that is the, the the park the national park i mean that is a huge yes, although she also was very um instrumental in making sure that farewell spit because she saw its value as a breeding ground for certain shorebirds and migratory birds so that was another one of her major um achievements as a you know as a land thing but i think she just opened people's eyes but i think if people are listening and going well i don't have time to you know tie myself to trees and be a um you know, that level of activist. And if people are finding themselves sort of distressed by the state of the world, everyone can do a little something. We mm-hmm. don't all have to do grand gestures. You can, like today I was just going for a run and I took my gardening gloves because I'd spotted a bunch of woolly nightshade babies that had propped up on one of my little sort of off the, you know, like a little bush track. And I was like, I can't keep looking at them. I just have to pull them out. Mm. And that didn't take me more than 10 minutes off the side of my morning exercises. You know, like if you see moth plants or litter, you don't have to wait for someone else to come along and do it. We can all be doing a little bit for nature and that all adds up to the grand thing. Yeah, and I think what, you've, what you're describing is um, with Perrine, but also in our daily lives, is that sense of observation. You know, she started by noticing, didn't she? And uh, it seems, and she noticed things and then she became more observant and then she connected and so on. But yeah, as you say, just a, just a small thing or planting some trees or offering mm. some plants. I've had a quick look and you can actually still get New Zealand birds and how to identify them. You can still buy it. I know, I have two copies. I have one copy which I got for my research. And then another copy, I was doing a reading in Tauranga in, um, at the Air Arts Festival in October at a bookshop. And this lovely man 
who is a, a librarian slash ornithologically inclined, you know, tree person, said, oh, we've got this, uh, this book was in the library. It was, you know, it was languishing in the bottom and we weren't really... And he gave me a new, a much more, um, a better condition copy. So, oh. yes, you can still get it. It's amazing. And because I discovered um, the pictures of Lily Daff in Perrine's book, when we were illustrating the anthology of New Zealand bird writing that I was doing, we used Lily Daff's beautiful um, drawings of, of birds, which are absolutely stunning. They're just I'm just looking at the cover of this one. Yeah, I'm just looking at the cover of this one, and it's absolutely beautiful. And um, so, I mean, and so a couple of women, and and, and it was published by Wickham and Tombs. There you go in Christchurch. That's a that's a <laughs> blast from the past. It? <laughs> but look, so we've got the, the plays coming. It it sounds absolutely marvellous. She sounds marvellous, and um, it's on Thursday the second of March and Friday the third of March, both at six thirty in the Indian Garden. About how long does the play go for, Elizabeth? The wonderful thing, it is about an hour. So it's, I think that's a perfect length for a play. No interval. You come along. And also, as the sun goes down and the birds sing their last songs of the night, that will be my backdrop. So I think it's going to be... I can't think of a nicer place to do this play. I'm super excited. So yes, Hamilton Gardens, March 2 and 3, 6.30. And what a nice time. Dinner yeah, afterwards. Home to right. not too late. I know that's absolutely perfect, and and as I say, the uh, the timing, six thirty, beautiful time of night down there because it will just be starting to, um, it'll still be light. We'll still be able to see you and hear your or beautiful people voice. Will see another uh, show. Yeah, go to that's another, another show. Thing. Yeah, so the program, um, you can just go to the Hamilton Arts Festival website. Um, and they've got a Facebook page as well. There's plenty of places you can get info. It's um, it is a packed program. It really seems like. There's heaps going and masses of variety. But, yeah, on the, especially um, on those that Thursday and Friday night, there's always a lot at the end of the week. They can pop in, see your show, be inspired, and then head off to some music. A rhododendron lawn to yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, oh, my gosh, the whole program is amazing. Like, it really is. And so many festivals have been ported lately to suddenly be outside in nature with people enjoying beautiful things and also because the gardens arts festival which used to be often you know weather is a, is a very big part of it uh, there are things happening off site of the gardens this year which will mean that regardless of what we are given in the way of the elements the show will go on which i think is also really exciting. oh totally and also you know we're undercover there and we've all got quite resilient i, I saw um, um a pianist you know um the um oh david helfgott you know with mum and an absolute pouring rain but look we still had a great time and he <laughs> and he still came to the party you know it was so i think um we've got good go and get one of those two dollar ponchos if you need to if you're going to be out and get into it but yeah you're right the arts festival has spread out through the city and uh, which is fantastic and it also showcases the wonderful gardens and you're a you're a um, hamiltonian aren't you your dad of course yes. very well known to um, many local people for his writing in the waikato times and as a work as a poet exactly so coming home for me well the last time i was in the Chabar gardens it was the day after dad's funeral and um, which was actually just five years ago, and I was doing a seminar for, for one of the art festival days about my bird words book. So this is the, the next time. So Dad will be with me in the Chabar Gardens in my in my heart Isn't because that, that whole place has such special memories for me. Oh well, look, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us today and for telling us about your new work. It's called A Rare Bird, and it's on in a few weeks' time at the Hamilton Arts Festival. Um, My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's Elizabeth Easter there, the author and actor.
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.